We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, my name is Harry. My dad is the CEO of Intelligence Squared. I have four things to say. First of all, Intelligence Squared runs amazing online debate courses and camps for kids with a great organisation called Debate Me. I've taken two of them. They were awesome. It made me feel self-confident. Now I don't feel shy. Second, if you don't live in the UK but want to do a course, Intelligence Squared will put on one for you if you can get at least 10 kids to sign up. This means you can live anywhere in the world and get the best Oxford-style debating training. My third point is, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate for more details. And in closing, here's my final statement. Debate Mate also works with adults and professionals. Same deal. Form your own group or class at least 10 people. Fill out a form at intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate and we'll put on the course whenever works for you. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy, madness, and chaos. 
In the midst of a deadly global pandemic, on November 3rd, the United States will go to the polls for an era-defining election. In the coming weeks on Intelligence Squared, we'll be speaking to world-leading experts about what's at stake in Biden versus Trump. The most important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election of our times. Probably one of the most important elections of our lifetime. This is the most important election in our lifetimes. Politicians say every time, oh, this is the most important election. This one's really that important. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to part two of the Intelligence Squared US election miniseries. In part one, we spoke to Thomas Friedman and Robert Peston about the final weeks of the presidential race. And today we're joined by John Bolton, Donald Trump's former national security advisor. And he spoke to the BBC's Emily Maitlis about what it's like inside the Trump administration giving us insight into what is likely going through Donald Trump's mind right now as we are a week away of that pivotal election on November 3rd. It was a really fascinating conversation. It delved into issues about Bolton advising Trump on the likes of North Korea, China and even Venezuela. And you can find out more about Bolton's experience inside the Trump administration in his book, The Room Where It Happened, and you can find a link for that book in the podcast description. Another quick reminder before we go, do join us for part three of our election miniseries tomorrow when we'll have Ilhan Omar speaking about healing America and the state of politics in the country. And that episode will be in partnership with the Tightrope podcast, hosted by Cornell West and Professor Trisha Rose. So do look out for that tomorrow. But now, let's go to this week's episode. Thank you so much and a warm welcome to all of you uh, joining us this evening. Promise not to make it cats versus dogs, but it is a huge honour to have John Bolton, Ambassador Bolton with us, uh, President Trump's National Security Advisor, uh, from April 2018 to September 2019, but a whole host of other roles uh, before that, a staple, as many of you will know and remember, of both Bush administrations, Ronald Reagan's White House too. And I want to start, Ambassador Bolton, with a big, deep breath, assessing where we are, because I think there are nerves all over the world tingling right now, this time next week. U.S. presidential election night will be over. Do you think we'll have a result? Uh, good evening to all of you. I, I don't think we we will have a result on Wednesday of next week, but I don't think that's necessarily cause for concern. The fact is everybody in the United States who cares about politics is haunted by 2016, when, although they won't at all admit it to you right now, everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And obviously she did not. And pollsters, commentators, pundits have been in a state of shock since then. As we speak today, Biden has a substantial lead in the national polls. He has substantial or respectable leads in enough key battleground states to give him the required majority in the Electoral College. But as one Democratic member of the House of Representatives was quoted a few days ago in the papers here, he said, every time I see these polls, I slap myself in the face and put my hand over a fire. Uh, I don't think he means that literally, but but he's clearly uh, demonstrating the concern about on the Democratic side about getting overconfident, and I think rightly so. If you had to be completely cold-blooded and simply look at the numbers, I think you would conclude that Biden would win and that the Democrats would take control of the Senate. 
but but nobody in America will say that because because they fear looking like they didn't realize 2016 happened. Now that that's simply the question of what the outcome of the election is. The the question that many people are concerned about or say they are, including most vociferously Donald Trump, is will the counting be fair and and will the election draw to an orderly close? I actually think that the concern is somewhat misplaced, I think, in, in the different states. And we run our elections at the state level, not at the federal level. They understand the magnitude of what confronts them, more mail-in ballots than ever before. As of this morning, the statistics are that counting mail-in ballots and in-person early voting, 50% of the total number of people who voted in 2016 have already voted in 2020. So this process is well underway, and I'm, I have more confidence in, in the electoral systems in the state than maybe some people do. I think there's going to be less fuss and bother than the, the most outlandish cases. Now, that does not discount the prospect that in states where there are close results, that under the laws of the different states, the losing candidate has a statutory right to file a contest or a challenge or ask for a recount. The, terminology differs. I'm a veteran of Florida in 2000. I spent 31 days in Florida because Al Gore challenged Bush's win on election night. Now, uh, so when people ask the question, will you accept the outcome of the election? You have to understand what that means. Did Gore accept the outcome of the election? No, he didn't. He challenged it. He had a statutory right to do so, and we beat him anyway. So uh, I think that's the real test. It may be that this stretches out, but we have a statutory and constitutional framework that will bring it to a decision. We will come to a decision, and we will know who won. We were talking about this election as a sort of, you know, hyperbolic extinction level event, a once in a lifetime election. Do you feel, does it feel that critical to you what happens this time around? Well, it's obviously an important election, but for me, it's important. And I say this for the first time in my adult political life, not voting for the Republican nominee for president. It's important that Donald Trump not get a second term. If Biden gets elected, I think there's every prospect will return to a set of policies, certainly in the international space, with which I've disagreed for many years. But I think Biden, in many respects, represents, and he won't like this comparison, he represents the Warren G. Harding of 2020. Harding won in 1920 on a pledge to return to normalcy. And Biden will look like a normal president. And uh, for many Americans, that may be the explanation why he uh, will win next week. You will write in a candidate just to explain to viewers that aren't familiar. You can basically choose any name or any candidate that you want and, and write that one into your ballot paper. How many other former White House insiders from this administration do, do you think will be doing the same thing? I mean, do you think... I don't know if this is something you talk about with former White House colleagues. Will any of them not be voting for Donald Trump? I think a large number will not be voting for Donald Trump. Uh, some, some people, many people in the Republican Party will vote for Trump because they fear the Democratic alternative. And I don't think that's an irrational or implausible concern. It's not so much Biden. It's the left wing of the Democratic Party. And we don't know fundamentally in a Biden administration how much influence this 
very radical left wing of the of on the Democratic side will will bring to bear. But I think a lot of other people will. Many will vote for Biden. Many will not vote at all. Or depending on what state they live in, they will write in uh, the name of someone else, as I do. What do you believe will happen to the Republican Party? Either way, I mean, this is one of the the really big unknowns. That if 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 Trump was the iconoclast who basically, you know, drove the wrecking ball through the Republican Party, it survives once in some shape or form. Does it survive twice? Is it better for the party if he loses or better for the party party if he wins? Well, I think that uh, it, it's best to understand Trump as an anomaly, uh, as an aberration. He's not a conservative uh, I don't mean by that to say he's a liberal. He's not anything. He's Donald Trump. He doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't follow grand strategy. He doesn't pursue policy. He uh, seeks his own advantage and and uh, and pursues it with 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 very careful skill. I think the party would be better off because I think the country would be better off if he loses. And I am very confident that if he does lose after the election, there'll be a long and serious conversation within the party about how to make sure something like him never happens again. I wonder what you make of your colleagues. I mean, there's a, there's been a certain kind of shape shifting of people who stood up to him, then kind of accepted him. I'm sort of thinking of the Rubios and, and Ted Cruz and the people who who were part of that big lineup of presidential candidates who I don't think ever quite got to grips with what side they were on, whether they were for him or against him, whether they could carry on doing their job whilst decrying what he was doing. What, what was the best way to, to, to handle him? I, I don't think I know the answer to that question. I think people handled it in their own ways. I handled it my way. I saw other people wrestle with the uh, the uh, political and moral dilemma, how they should handle it in uh, in their turn. I would have to admit there were not as many profiles and courage as I would have liked to have seen. And I, I think that that's part of the reason that the Republican Party has suffered damage, because people have seen what Trump has done and that there was really not as much opposition as one might have thought. I, I don't conclude from that, however, that we need to tear the party down, that everybody that that in some way assisted Trump was an enabler who needs to be purged from the House or the Senate. I think the day after the election, if Trump loses, a lot of Republicans will say, you know, I was never really for him anyway. Now, that's not a profile in courage either. My view is uh, I'd be happy to take that because we've got to build a foundation uh, to be a competitive party again. And in American politics, parties are written off all the time. When Barry Goldwater, the first candidate I supported, ran in 1964, he lost by one of the biggest landslides in American history. Two years later, Nelson Rockefeller was elected governor of New York. Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California. And two years after that, Richard Nixon, written off for dead politically, won the presidency. Uh, and it goes like that. It goes in cycles. So we'll, we'll be back, but we need to build back, I think, in a Reagan-esque vein. I think that has been the North Star for conservatives in the Republican Party for a long time. I think it's the right way to go. And I think that's where most people want to head. It's, it, there will be work to do. There's no doubt about it. I'll come on to international affairs, your specialism, of course, and talk about here is the, the room where it happened, Ambassador Bolton's book and some of what you say. Just before we get there, though, I, I want to talk about a pretty significant moment this week, which is the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. 
a phenomenal achievement for conservative right America. I, I guess for them, Donald Trump has achieved everything they could have dreamed of and more, hasn't he? I mean, maybe it doesn't matter so much whether for that swathe of America, and I'm guessing you would be part of that, Ambassador Bolton, it doesn't really matter whether he wins the presidency or not. Well, that's that's a theory that's out there that people will say, okay, so there are 200 plus new judges in the lower courts and three new Supreme Court uh, justices. We don't have to worry about going to the polls. I, I don't think that will be the uh, conclusion that people draw, but I do think it's significant. And I think this is an example, not of a principled approach to the Constitution by Donald Trump. It's a it's a stunningly accurate reflection of his determination to get reelected by adhering to the pledge he made in 2016 to appoint originalist nominees to the court system. And when you say <laughs> his intention to get reelection, I guess some people will hear in that a sinister understanding, which is that if this election is close, is contested, that he will lean on his latest nominee in her judicial capacity and expect her to return favours. What would you say to those voters in America now who are genuinely concerned that that's the role she'll play? Well, I don't put anything past Trump, but if he tries that, I think she'll tell him to stuff it. And I think, as she said in her speech when she was sworn in, when you become a justice, you are independent of the president, independent of the Congress, and independent of your own personal views. I think that that's a philosophy she's demonstrated in her time on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm very confident that's the approach she'll follow on the Supreme Court. So she said she's not going to be a pawn. You don't think she feels, you know, this is the guy that got me in the job, I have to return the favor. I mean, she, she can't last as a justice if, if, if that's how she's thinking, right? Look, there is zero chance that will happen. What about the nervousness that some people have from Donald Trump's refusal so far to acknowledge a peaceful transfer of power? He has said that his voters should head to the polls, watch very carefully. I mean, if people heard from that, that he wants not poll watchers, but vigilantes, and we know that, you know, in open carry states, people turn up to the polls with their firearms if, if they need. Is Does that create a, a nervousness, a tinderbox scenario for you? Well, I think the words were very ill-advised, as is so much of uh, Trump's rhetoric. But I have to tell you, in open carry states, they're used to open carry. That's, that's the nature of the state. You ought to go out west. And look, if there is any evidence that anybody's actually trying to intimidate voters, they should be arrested and prosecuted. These are efforts, I think, on Trump's part to stir up concern and uncertainty. I think it's going to boomerang against him. I think probably in many respects it already has. He tried to call into question the integrity of mail-in ballots, which Republican organizations around the country have relied on for many years and were counting to use effectively in the time of coronavirus and may well have hurt Republican vote totals overall by making people nervous and, and confused about it. I, I think this is, and in the next days and on election day in particular, will be uh, a test of Republicans that if this kind of behavior continues, it's really our responsibility to speak out about it. And, and I, I'm confident that, uh, that that will happen. It, it is not acceptable 
for Trump to use his uh, position to sow mistrust in the system. The president has a responsibility to build confidence in the general public. Uh, he fails in that repeatedly. And if he fails in that again, it's a further reason to discard him. Well, let's go to the book, because some of this will now become much clearer. After you left the White House and, and in your writing, you called Trump erratic, dangerous, stunningly uninformed. And I wonder how much of, of any of that came as a surprise. As a surprise to me or to him? Well, <laughs> let's start with you, first of all. I'm guessing you went into the White House knowing what that administration would be like and knowing the limitations of what you imagined you'd get done. Well, I, I had uh, had any number of meetings with Trump before I joined the administration, before he became a candidate, when he was a candidate, during the transition, during his first year plus in office. I thought based on comments that he made to me that he understood what my views were. We exchanged ideas repeatedly in these meetings. He said he had watched me on television for years, so I assumed he was listening and understood what I said. And I felt that the presidency would affect him as it has affected the 44 people who preceded him in the office, that the weight of the responsibility, the gravity of, of the issues that he had to decide would make it possible to have an effective decision-making meeting on critical national security issues. And uh, I was quite disturbed at some of the policies followed by the Obama administration. I felt the United States faced a number of extraordinarily significant challenges around the world and that uh, I could help make a contribution. And the book is really the story of 17 months of why I was wrong about the effect of the presidency on Trump. Take us inside one of the rooms where it happened. You're, you're all sitting around with Kim Jong-un. It's about page 110 of the, of the book in, in Singapore with a North Korean leader. And Donald Trump says he, he thinks he's made you a dove. He describes you as, you know, the guy that was once a hawk but he thinks he's made you a dove. And then he starts making concessions in terms of reducing the scope of, of U.S. exercises. And, and you're sort of, what, stuck, slightly paralyzed, able to speak, not able to speak, able to correct a president when he's taking the talks in the wrong direction. Just talk us through what that was like. Well, we were in a room in a very nice uh, hotel in Singapore. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, John Kelly, the Chief of Staff, myself and the President, Kim Jong-un and three of his senior advisors on the other side. And the President said that without any advance warning to any of us. It was a mistake. It was a mistake uh, when he made it and one that you can't correct on the spot. I mean, I could have spoken up or one of the others could have spoken up to say, well, actually, we don't think that's a good idea. And uh, we would have been overruled and probably uh, fired shortly thereafter. And I look, that's that's the trade-off you make when you uh, go to work in our system. It's a it's a privilege to be able to discuss these issues. But as I like to say, when I was at the White House, I was the national security advisor, not the national security decision maker. He was. It was a totally unforced error for him to say that. I thought it was a totally unforced error to be in a room with Kim Jong-un uh, without having gotten some concession from him in advance. But that decision had already been made. And it, it reflected why I feared Donald Trump being left alone with authoritarian leaders, because they saw him, in my view, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Rachel Erdogan, 
as an easy mark. And that was an example of it. Is it more frustrating to be in the room then and not able to speak out against what you feel is American interests? Or is it worse being on the other side? I think in the Helsinki talks, and, and that was a, a press conference, I guess, where, where you couldn't you, you, you couldn't prevent Donald Trump from ultimately siding with Putin or sounding like he sided with Putin over his own security forces. I mean, what was what was that like to what do, do you want to grab, you know, storm the stage and grab the microphone or do you just want to hang your head or drink heavily? What, what happens in those moments? It was a sort of death flashing before your eyes because there wasn't the slightest doubt that everybody in that room understood what Trump had just done. And uh, I, I was sitting in the front row with uh, other Americans on the delegation. The press was right behind us and you could all but hear them gasp and, and scribble away on their notebooks and iPads and things like that. Trump didn't really realize what he had said until we were on Air Force One coming home. When he did realize, it took him overnight before he finally concluded he had misspoken, which may or may not be the truth, but it was one of the first and only times I ever heard him back away from something he had said in public because the reaction in Washington and around the country was catastrophic from his point of view, as it should have been. Just walk us walk us through what that sounds like. You get back on Air Force One. Who is the brave person that says that was catastrophic? Like, you shouldn't have said that, sir, Mr. President. Does, does, do you wait for it to sink in or do you do you take him aside or is there a sort of, you know, embarrassment factor of, of you know, I don't know whether you, you, you know, call straws and see who gets the, the shortest one. What happens? Well, uh, even before we had gotten back on, I was on the phone with uh, Mira Ricardel, who was my deputy at the time, and she was explaining the explosive reaction that we were getting in Washington. I was speaking with Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence from the plane uh, on a secure phone to see what the reaction in the intelligence community was, and it obviously wasn't good. And at the same time, Trump was in his office on the plane watching the press reaction and the incredible negative response that it, that he was getting. And he, he at first didn't understand why anybody could react that way. And so uh, it was explained to him in a number of different ways that saying basically you agree with Vladimir Putin rather than your own intelligence services is not a good thing to say, which he didn't admit at the time. It was only overnight as he continued to assess the press reaction that he realized that he had to do something to fix it, whether he had in fact misspoken or that just became a convenient excuse, I don't know. But I don't think there was anything that any of us on the plane said to him that persuaded him. His reaction and his response was due to his take on what he was seeing on television. So he doesn't shoot the messenger. I mean, there isn't that moment of... Oh, he does plenty of that. No, he does, he does that on plenty of occasions. On this case, though, it was more a question of him processing what uh, he said he couldn't understand on television when he first saw it. There weren't just mistakes or, or misspeaking. You describe events, I guess you would call direct political interference. I mean, asking for political interference from foreign powers. You said you saw him ask President Xi of China for help in getting reelected, soliciting him to buy soybeans from, from Iowa to to to, to help his chances of re-election. So what is going through your head at this point? And, and what decisions are you battling when you see presidents approaching foreign powers, you could call them enemy powers, 
to, to work on his own election chances? Well, uh, obviously, I discussed this with uh, other senior advisors who were present after the meeting was over. And although some of them now say they didn't hear that, I, I know what I heard and and so did the Chinese, and it will certainly be in their records when, when they eventually become public. And there's some things you just you just can't stop and you can't correct. It gets to the point where ultimately the only recourse is to resign, which is which is what I finally did. And Ukraine was another one. You are absolutely certain, you confirm in your book, that he paused security aid to Ukraine until he had got the concession from the Ukrainian president that there would be an investigation into Joe Biden, the Biden family, which was obviously the, the, the case for the impeachment later. So that was something you saw with your own eyes? Yes. And, and also investigating Hillary Clinton, it was all sort of like a bowl of spaghetti who was going to be investigated. Never very clear to me what this conspiracy theory was. But it was also uh, something he did with Xi Jinping and uh, Recep Erdogan involving himself in uh, ongoing criminal investigations and prosecutions in the U.S., to uh, offer to give something to these leaders almost as a personal favor, rather than making a decision as president that law enforcement has to take uh, precedence over foreign policy or vice versa. And it was that kind of casual attitude. Uh, I spoke to the White House counsel about that. I spoke to the attorney general about it, passing it off to the people who had responsibility to, to handle it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So at what point do you say, I'm in the room where it happens, but right now I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing and what I know and what I believe should be public, because presumably you have a, a, a duty of, I don't know if you call it loyalty or silence, or th there is 
presumably a moment at which you you become complicit in whatever the president is doing. When does that when when does that start hitting you and you start thinking about the morality of what you're doing? Well, I think in the kind of position I held, there is a very, very strong duty of loyalty to the Constitution and to the institutions that it creates. There's there's not personal loyalty in the sense of 12th century England in, in feudal times or in, in uh, mafia loyalty to the, to the gang chief. And I think for those who struggled with this question, the importance of keeping the ship of state moving, as it were, was very significant. And uh, uh, dealing with somebody like Trump who didn't share that concern made it all the more difficult. Different people made different choices. It was not one moment when the light bulb went off for me where I said, gee, this is, this is bad. It sort of went downhill in a very steady fashion. And just as there was no one thing, no one straw that finally convinced me to resign, it was the accumulation of of uh, information that that was true in this case as well, and and there is I think a uh, an obligation when you when you agree to uh, to go into an administration you get to offer your point of view you don't get guarantee that your point of view will be adopted, and it's uh, it's a matter for everybody to decide for themselves how long they stick it out until they finally leave. And I guess there will be plenty of people watching who say, look. Ambassador Bolton was well known as a hawk in previous administrations. And it was Trump himself who said, when you left, you know, we'd, we'd be on World War Six if you had your own way. Do you accept that actually his approach, whilst maybe erratic and stunningly complicated, or, or as he wrote, uninformed, got a lot of stuff right? He got Kim Jong-un to the table. He attacked Syria short, sharp after the chemical weapons. He, you know, did for ISIS pretty much with very few American casualties. Do you think some way or another, he he actually came up with, with a lot of notches on his side in his foreign policy? Well, I think there were some correct decisions. I think a massive increase in the defense budget over the Obama levels, for example, was a very positive step. I think getting out of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal was a very positive step. But negotiating with Kim Jong-un has produced nothing because there was never any evidence that Kim Jong-un or North Korea had made a strategic decision to give up nuclear weapons. So where are we four years after Trump took office? Kim Jong-un is four years closer to getting a capability of dropping a nuclear warhead on an American city. In in the case of uh, Syria, you know, we made decisions there that, that fundamentally undermined the success in destroying the ISIS territorial caliphate. So that uh, when when you when you see when you look at the whole pattern, you can see that with no strategy being followed, uh, there's every prospect that. Uh, the next decision could be catastrophic, and there's uh, certainly the reality that we have missed countless opportunities because the president wasn't paying attention. And what about immigration policy? Clearly, that was so totemic to how he was elected and the rhetoric he used at the time. The separation policy of children from their parents. We now know there's 545 sets of parents who cannot find their children. And I know in the book you write, page 228, despite my efforts to stay out of the immigration stew, it followed me. I'm wondering if no one 
was telling Trump at that time that what he was doing was disgraceful. Well, people were telling him not to do certain things and he ignored them. And this was a classic case where there was no functioning decision-making process at all. Trade was the other major area. Uh, I certainly offered him, and I explain in the book, I gave him a one-page paper uh, at his request in late 2018 at how to fix the decision-making when it came to immigration. He looked at it, said he would wait until after the 2018 election, put it in his pocket, and I never heard from him again. I had to, but sorry, but even before you get to policy or a one-page, you know, explanation of what you think is the right track, wasn't anyone saying don't separate children from their parents? This is going to be appalling and chaotic and deeply damaging for for the immigrants themselves, for America's reputation and and for humanity, actually. I'm just I I wonder whether that was something that passed anyone's lips. I don't know, because I wasn't involved in those decisions. And it was because things were going badly, I think, that Jared Kushner, I believe, suggested that maybe Trump ought to get me involved in it. And having watched this Uh, unfolding debacle, I gave in this one pager what I thought the administration needed to do to get back on an even keel. And as I say, he looked at it, put it in his pocket, said he would get back to me after the election and never did. If there is, and I'm only going from, from your earlier comments and what we know of the polls, still very much up in the air, but if there is a Biden administration, um, next January, would you be encouraging Republicans to work alongside him He has made clear that he wants to be the healer, reunite, you know, a a sort of toxically divided America. Would you say this is the time for for you or for your colleagues or for other Republicans to go into an administration and and work alongside a Democrat? Well, it would depend on, uh, uh, I think, what happens within the Democratic Party and what what the left wing demands of Biden. They have basically said that their battle begins on November the 4th, and I I give them credit for discipline because the left wing is not going to sit home. They are going to vote for Biden, and they're going to expect uh, concessions if he wins. I hope Biden is sincere about what he's saying, but I remember him quite well in his capacity as the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Rehnquist confirmation hearings and even more his role as chairman of the Judiciary Committee during the Bork confirmation hearings when I was an assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice in charge of legislative affairs and therefore very much involved in Supreme Court confirmations. And Robert Bork was a former professor of mine and the Democrats savaged him. And Biden led that charge. And I will never forget that. Ambassador Bolton, I'm going to bring in some of our audience questions. The first one is, and and I feel we've probably set the parameters around this one widely already. How much does the president really understand the complexities of international affairs? Well, I don't think he understands most of them very well. But I think what what is more important to understand is he doesn't particularly care. No, no president comes into the office with 360 degree knowledge of the responsibilities they face. It's, it's too vast. But uh, responsible presidents try and learn what they don't know. Trump shows uh, very little interest in learning what he doesn't know. He, he acts on the basis of instinct. He thinks that dealing with foreign leaders is largely a matter of personal relations. He thinks he can size people up 
almost instantaneously and resolve complex issues uh, in fairly quick negotiations. That's what he thinks. And despite efforts to convince him that maybe it's a little bit different, he, he has never changed from that view. And I suspect if he gets a second term, having been reelected, he'll feel even more strongly that he did it his way the first term and he's going to do it his way the second term. Is there an area of foreign policy that really piques his interest? Do you think there is anything that he he has come into the White House desperately wanting to to change or reform? I mean, he he always talked about ending foreign wars, ending the bloodshed, a, a more isolationist policy. I mean, is that something that he feels very strongly? Well, sometimes he does and sometimes he won it. He doesn't. He he repeatedly asked, as I explain in the book, what our plans were to overthrow the Maduro regime in Venezuela, which was something I thought was very inadvisable. It, it's uh, you, your, your question implies that there's some kind of coherence to his thinking, uh, which there is not. I think he he sees the the uh, achievement that he wants as a series of deals. He wanted a deal with North Korea. He wants a trade deal with China, the deal of the century, biggest trade deal in human history. Uh, right now, he'd love to have a deal on strategic weapons with Russia before the election. Doesn't look like they're going to get one. That's what he thinks about. The terms of the deal, the deals are a lot less important to him than the flash and the lights of getting the deal. That's not because it's connected to a strategy. It's because he does deals. So when he came in, and this takes me on to my second question, the phrase, one of many phrases he used was draining the swamp. Do you think he has, as in we understand, draining Washington politics as they had been done for decades before or or getting rid of the corruption or the insider politicking of, of, of D.C.? Do you think he has drained the swamp or do you think he's added to it? Well, I think there are a whole cadre of new, very successful lobbyists in Washington who point to their connections to the Trump administration as one of their principal attributes. And I think many of them have been uh, quite successful. I I think that as any student of the bureaucracy will tell you that every uh, government agency has its own culture. There is what used to be called in Washington, the iron triangle of interest between the bureaucracy, a few members of Congress and private sector interest. That's all out there. It's nothing new. Trump made no serious effort in four years to address these kinds of structural problems. It requires very hard work. It requires appointing cabinet members who each in their own department or agency uh, will go after the embedded bureaucracy and and, uh, culture and uh, make changes. And that that happened only uh, accidentally, really, in the Trump administration. So it's a great campaign slogan. And that means it served its purpose. Let's stick with the campaign slogans then and and the MAGA caps. Has he restored, this is the next question, has he restored America's greatness to any extent at all? Well, America never stopped being great. I didn't didn't like the slogan from the beginning. And I don't think his actions as president have enhanced that. I do think he's done damage to uh, United States interest around the world. And there's a lot of corrective work to be done. I I think much of it is superficial and therefore can be corrected quickly. And I think it's superficial because he's superficial. Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. Many of the things that you rather like um, might be overturned. You liked America's position pulling out of the Iran deal, certainly. I'm guessing you weren't a signatory to Paris and the climate change. Is that right? Right. Well, it's 
Yeah, I, Biden may go back into all those things, but he will also find the landscape is very different, and it gets a lot more complicated once they get inside. So we'll, we'll see what actually happens. Nearly this time a year ago, we saw the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. This is question number five. Do you think that the impeachment of Donald Trump was a fair process? And this was one in which you could have been involved. The House Democrats wanted you to testify. They didn't force you, but you could have have done that. Was the impeachment trial fair? And are you happy with your own part in it? Uh, No, it was not fair. And I am happy with my own part in it. I thought it was a catastrophic mistake by the Democrats in terms of their own objectives. They selected a very narrow focus, the Ukraine issue. They rushed it through the House of Representatives. They took both of these decisions because they didn't want to interfere in the Democratic presidential nomination process. Those decisions had the consequence of driving Republicans into a partisan corner, guaranteeing a partisan outcome in the House of Representatives and guaranteeing a partisan outcome in the Senate. But the greatest mistake was their logic in bringing impeachment in the first place. Nancy Pelosi felt that if they could taint Trump with impeachment, that they could constrain his behavior and deter similar conduct in the future. And after the House acted, she said famously, he will always be impeached. But that's only half a thought, because then it went to the Senate where he was acquitted. And indeed, one can now say he will always be acquitted. So just ask, is it likely that you're going to create structures of deterrence by acquitting someone? And the answer is clearly no. The House impeachment action did not constrain Donald Trump. If he wins a second term, it will empower Donald Trump. It will have precisely the opposite effect of what was intended. And I thought that was a huge mistake. It may have politically benefited the Democrats, but it hurt the country. I'm guessing that people sitting at home and and trying to understand this will say, if what you saw and what you've already explained to us was true, that he was approaching Xi of China to ask him for interference in in his election chances, if he was approaching the Ukrainian president and withholding aid, if he was acting in a way that many in the administration would have seen as, as quite frankly, corrupt, why, why was it not right for them to bring about a trial that would remove him? I mean, surely it comes down to whether they believed that this president was acting in America's national security interests. And from everything you've said, he wasn't. Well, I referred these incidents, as I said before, to the White House counsel and the attorney general. I had a lot of responsibilities in my job. Doing other people's jobs wasn't one of them. So I did what an administration official in my position should do. Faced with the impeachment effort, I think it's clear that as a citizen, My duty is not to obey the commands of a partisan office holder. My duty, as it was as an official, is to the Constitution. And it was my judgment that this impeachment effort would not just fail, but would fail catastrophically. And with all due respect, I think that's exactly what happened. And instead, I believe that to tell this story effectively, to tell the whole story, not the little piece that the House Democrats wanted. But to tell the whole story required a book. And I wrote a book. And that is an honorable thing to do. 
That book now is available to the American people. They can read it and make up their own minds. And it's also available to history. So others may disagree with that, but I did my duty as I saw it. Some commentators have pointed out, and and this is a leap, so bear with me, that if Donald Trump had been removed by that impeachment trial, it is conceivable that many Americans wouldn't have perished through his mishandling of the corona crisis three months on. I mean, do you reflect on that at all, that this would have been a very different year? Yeah, look, that's like saying if I had some bread, I could have a ham sandwich if I had some ham. Yeah, if if he could have been impeached and removed. This goes to the fundamental miscalculation that the advocates of impeachment made. It's like they didn't bother to read the Constitution, which states very clearly that to be convicted and removed by the Senate requires a two-thirds majority of those present and voting. There were 47 Democrats in the Senate. They needed 20 Republicans. They got one. So they drove right off a cliff, just like a herd of lemmings, without paying attention to what the consequences were. So for somebody to say, yeah, you know, if only you had flown to the moon, think of what would have happened if Pence had become president. Well, that, that's great, but it's not realistic. We, just before, we've got a question about General Soleimani in a second. But just while you mentioned Mike Pence, I just it takes me back to something that you were saying about loyalty. And, you know, it's not the feudal system of, of England in the 12th century and it's not mafia. But I wonder what you make of the characters like Mike Pence, his vice president, or Stephen Mnuchin, who have remained very solidly at his side. Do you think that is admirable loyalty or do you think, I don't know, do you, do, you, do you think that has been questionable? Well, I think you have to distinguish Pence from everybody else in the executive branch. Uh, Mike Pence was elected by the people and by the Electoral College and a vice president really doesn't have an option to resign. I mean, absent something uh, that's almost inconceivable. I don't know what it would be. The vice president has got to be there because he's the next in line. And I think a lot of the things that uh, Pence did, as with all vice presidents, were entirely in private uh, with the president. As for everybody else, you know, everybody has to live with his or her own conscience, and, and they will all speak for themselves. I will tell you, when I resigned, I received a lot of criticism from close friends of mine and others who said, you, you shouldn't have resigned. You, you should have stayed. You should have tried to persuade the president. You weren't the president. You, you should have stayed and kept advising him along the right lines. And I, I think that's wrong. But, but a lot of people think that everybody should have stayed uh, to the very end. Everybody's got to make up his own decision. And uh, I've made mine and I explained my logic in 500 pages and and, uh, people are welcome to read it and agree or disagree. Well, let's get back to this question. Do you think President Trump ordered the assassination of General Soleimani in January? Gosh, I can't believe that was only this January. It seems about five years ago, but that's been the kind of year it is. Did he do that primarily to help his re-election prospects? Now, I think one of your lines is that everything that you saw you believed was done to help his re-election prospects. But perhaps we can focus particularly on on this strike, the assassination of General Soleimani. Well, I don't want to get into specifics on how this happens, but I will say as a general proposition, when when the the, the, the question comes up about whether to, to authorize such an action, it doesn't happen on the spur of the moment. It's been planned for a long time, and it's gone through a lot of... Uh, 
very careful analysis to make sure it meets the obligations of American law and that all of the necessary considerations have been taken into account. It's like, yeah. well, it's it, in that sense, the president obviously has to order it. He has to consider all the different factors. It was the right decision to make. But I think it was, and, and it was supported by a lot of other people for reasons having absolutely nothing to do with domestic American politics. But I think in Trump's mind, that was a very major factor. Killing Soleimani was a major blow against the Iranian Ayatollahs. And frankly, it was long overdue. Here is a comment or, or a question from um, a, a fan, a reader. I enjoyed reading Mr. Bolton's book, and my question concerns a more personal aspect. What does Mr. Bolton believe to be the greatest misconception that people have about him? Uh, I'm assuming that means about, about you, sir, about yourself. You know, honestly, I'd have to say I don't I don't think about what misconceptions people have about me. I don't I don't want to make this personal in return. But, you know, if I had to respond to every error in the press that's been printed or spoken about me, I would have no other occupation than trying to fix the record. So after a while, I've just stopped caring about it that much. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of the questioner, but I, I just I don't think about it. Is there a phrase particularly or is there a description that you find wrong or misleading? I mean, you don't, presumably you don't mind being called a, a sort of a hawk, right? Or you, is there anything that you find you constantly read that, that you disagree with? Well, I disagree with a lot of them. I, I look, but I, I also don't pay much attention to, to bumper stickers like that. Pe- pe- people who think that they win an argument by saying he's, he's a this or he's a that, you know, they're welcome to their opinion. I don't really care that much about it. Question 13. Can you imagine a scenario where a defeated Donald Trump is arrested for the commission of various criminal acts? How does that work? I mean, it's something to be fair. We often see it in France, you know, the sort of the the sort of the criminal, the sort of pursuit of, of former presidents for criminal acts after they've left office. Do you think that is the case here? Would you expect that? Well, I think in in Trump's case, he has uh, the potential for a lot of investigation and litigation in connection with his with his business activities before he became president. What will happen after he leaves office, I don't know, but I would not be surprised if unlike any other president, he pardons himself in advance. You've never heard of it because nobody's ever done it before, but for example, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for any offenses he may have committed before any char- any criminal charges were brought. And that was a valid exercise of the pardon power of, of the, the many executive powers under the Constitution. The, the pardon power is one that has no constraint, at least no constraint that any court has ever ordered. So I think it's entirely possible that Trump could pardon himself, his family and others in advance. And that may answer the question right there. I would say this, though, as, as a general proposition. I think the criminalization of politics that we've seen in this country over the past half century is a mistake. It reminds me too much of third world countries and uh, some that are not third world countries. You've got to be able to learn to disagree with people without saying they're criminals or corrupt. Trump himself hasn't learned that. That's not the way he's behaved. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a Democratic administration or a Democratic Congress should return the favor. If, if you're going to de-escalate 
from the level of partisanship we have in the United States now, it, it's got to start somewhere. And after Donald Trump's term seems to me to be a pretty good way to way to start. Would you expect any of his children to to go on and stand for president? Is that something that you had talked about? Do you think there's interest there? Well, there may be interest. I think they have no chance. But why do you say that with such certainty? Because there is no Trumpism. There, there is no philosophy. There is no hereditary mantle to pass down. And I think part of the conversation Republicans are going to have after this election, as I say, is to make sure that a Trump doesn't happen again. So if a member of his family wants to run for city council in their local city and then run for Congress and then run for Senate and then run for governor and then run for president. Sure, that's fine. I mean, ha- have at it. But the idea that one of them is going to become the Republican Party presidential nominee, no. Question 14. Will the Republicans, now that they've secured a third Supreme Court judge, consider Trump to be no longer useful to their long term future? whereby they need minority support to win? And if so, will we see the Republican Party return to being the party of McCain-Bush? Well, I, I don't think, uh, you know, the you, what is the saying? You can't step in the same river twice. T- time has moved on. But what I was saying before about the post-election conversation is to cut this albatross off from around our throat and revive the party, I would say, along Reagan-esque lines, but also hopefully to... Uh, hold on to the people he's brought into the party. Years ago, they would have been called Reagan Democrats. That's useful. And I think uh, what the what the polls show at this moment is that Hispanic Americans may vote for Trump in higher percentages than for any other Republican nominee, not a majority, but higher percentages, which I think is great. And that's a stepping stone for the next Republican nominee and something for the Democrats to worry about. So this this effort to put the party back on its feet after the election, I think, is going to be a complex process. I don't expect Trump to fade from the scene graciously. I think if he loses, there will be a stab in the back theory. I expect I'll be named as one of the stabbers in the back. There will be recriminations, and we're just going to have to go through it. I don't, I don't think you can avoid it. But I do think we can have as our objective putting this behind us, drawing a line under it, and talking about the future against an agenda, certainly by the left wing of the Democratic Party, that would be very detrimental to the country. What happens to – I know you said there isn't such an ideology as Trumpism, but there are clearly still – strong support, strong vocal support for Donald Trump around the country. And of course, he may he may win the presidency come Tuesday. If he doesn't, what happens to that force of feeling, do you think, that brought him to the presidency? A lot of the support for Trump can be explained by the way these people felt they were treated under prior administrations and, and by the last Democratic presidential nominee who called many of them deplorables. And, you know, I know who these people are. My father was a firefighter for the city of Baltimore. Neither he nor my mother were fortunate enough to uh, attend college. My father never graduated from high school. We lived in a blue collar neighborhood. And I'm sure that that was the kind of family Hillary Clinton felt was deplorable. I know it makes my blood boil, and I bet it makes the deplorables blood boil too. So when they saw Trump, they saw somebody they could be loyal to. Wasn't she speaking very specifically about not a type of person or a class of person or an educational person, but people 
who shared some of his racist, misogynist, homophobic views. Uh, I think that was the context of the speech, wasn't it? And, and they objected to being called racist, misogynist, homophobic, and all the other adjectives she used. This is the kind of divisive partisan rhetoric that splits a country apart. And if people continue to use it, I'm sad to say we're going to have a continued risk of more Donald Trumps. There's a great old saying in politics that when responsible politicians don't address the people's needs, irresponsible politicians will address them. And I think that's what happened in Trump. But presumably you're not saying that nobody, I mean, given the year that we've had and the demonstrations and, and the death of George Floyd and, and many others, you're not saying that nobody in the U.S. should be calling out racism, are you? I didn't say that at all. I thought what I said was pretty clear, that if you're a blue collar, working class person, you feel by and large, uh, certainly with a high statistical probability that the Democratic Party has not only abandoned you, but rejects you uh, for what you are. These were the Reagan Democrats in 1980. These are many of the people who have come into the Trump campaign in 2016 and this year. The Democratic Party wants to give up labor union members to the Republican Party. I'll take every one of them. Let's finish now with uh, one last thought, and it taps back into something that you said at the beginning. I wonder if you think that Donald Trump has been at all changed by the presidency. I don't think he's been changed I don't think he's been changed at all. I don't think to this day he yet understands the full scope of his responsibilities or what he should have been doing as president rather than spending much of his time watching cable news. And I think the the consequence of his behavior is an uncounted number of missed opportunities, certainly in the national security field and, and I expect in domestic policy as well. He didn't work very hard being president. He worked extraordinarily hard, unbelievably hard at getting reelected, which is my why he may yet succeed. Ambassador Bolton, we'll draw it to close there, but thank you very much for your time this evening. And the uh, room where it happened is John Bolton's book. Thank you all for watching and for joining us this evening and have a good evening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.